Hi, my name is Darren Aronofsky. It's December 1st, 2000, and I'm in a studio in freezing cold New York. I'm the uh, co-screenwriter and the director of the movie you're about to watch, Requiem for a Dream. After we made Pi, um, we had the opportunity to make a, a bunch of different movies, um, and we wanted to make this film, and uh, everyone said we were crazy, and I, it was a really hard thing to make. Um, so I'm really, really proud um, of it, and I'm happy that I can be here and tell you about the war that it took to make this movie. Um, I guess it all, all starts with Hubert Selby Jr. Um, and with his novel, which uh, starts off the same way this movie starts off. Um, I think the opening line of Selby's novel is, uh, Harry locked his mom in the closet. And uh, as soon as I read that, I was extremely excited about the potential of this scene. Um, when we made Pi, we tried to make a fully uh, subjective movie, meaning from the point of view of Max Cohen's brain, every single shot, meaning we never cut away to the bad guys plotting to take over the world. Um, we just stayed with our main character. And one of the reasons I was attracted to Selby's work is because he's a really great subjective writer. He gets deep into characters' heads, and he really shows you what the world looks from their, you know, personal point of view. And this film started off with my two main characters um, through a door, and um, I, I was perplexed about how I was going to do um, a fully subjective movie um, if it was if if both characters were on either side of a door and. That sort of led to the idea of starting to use split screen. In the background, um, the soundtrack is, uh, at which we'll talk about more, was all done by Clint Mansell, my composer. Um, but the music right now is the Kronos Quartet. And if you listen closely, you can hear them tuning up. And the idea was that it was an orchestra tuning up, um, you know, because what we were about to see was a requiem. And if it should be happening, it would be. This perhaps is. Um, sets up the entire film and exactly what's about. What Ellen Burstyn says here is um, really what the movie's about. And very early on, we had the idea of these big, big, big title cards to sort of once again point it towards a requiem. Because ultimately what we wanted to do is um, make a, a composition, a musical comp composition that sort of climaxed over 100 minutes. Um, and the music and the images and production design and the costumes hopefully um, work together to, um, to sort of make an entire requiem. Um, if you look close, there goes my mom. And that's the evil landlady from, uh, from Pi, who's my mom's best friend. So, um, once again, this, this was a, uh, one of the first ideas I had when I read the novel was... Um, this scene of, uh, of uh, Harry and Tyrone pushing the TV through the streets to set up the neighborhood and to set up the characters and to set up the tone. Um, and uh, for me, I guess, you know, the most significant thing is, uh, is the music here. Um, Clint is, uh, worked, on, worked with me on Pi. And then when we started working on Requiem, when he started to deliver music, it started, you know, Clint purely is an electronic musician, totally works with moods and Ataris and, you know, samples and digital. And when he started delivering music, I, there was a lot of strings in it. And very early on, we started thinking of, you know, how, you know, we were going to be able to afford an orchestra to do this. And, 
you know, what orchestra we would get. And one day, me and Eric, my producer, Eric Watson, we came up with the idea of getting the Kronos. Um, and uh, we showed them the movie, and uh, they loved it and wanted to be involved. And, uh, I mean, they just breathed so much life into it. Um, beyond Ellen Burstyn, they were probably the most inspirational artists I had the chance to work with. Um, so I encourage you to sit back and, you know, blast the music and enjoy it uh, once you're done listening to me. There goes Nathan's in the background, which is... Um, I grew up in Coney Island, which is the neighborhood we shot this in. Selby's book is, is based in the Bronx. Um, but... Um, Oh, I have to stop for one second to tell you that that roller coaster right there, the Thunderbolt, uh, I think three weeks ago was in the middle of the night, New York City. I must have been Giuliani, uh, brought in bulldozers and knocked it down, and it was or some contract. It was very upsetting, and uh, because it's supposed to be a landmark, but uh, unfortunately didn't get defended. Um, so the film starts in summer, um, which is you know. One of the great things about Selby's book is that he was able to structure it into three seasons, and you know anyone who reads any of those Sid Field books knows that uh, you know you're trying to find a three-act play uh, to to tell your mo movie in, and so Selby just sort of gave me that. You know, I'm having a hard time because this film moves so quickly to try and keep up and tell you the same story. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to describe certain scenes. I'm just probably going to just have to. I don't know, talk whatever comes to my head. Let me start with Selby, I guess, and my connection to Selby. Um, when I was in college back in 1987, I was a freshman in college, and um, I was a public school kid from Brooklyn, and um, I had uh, I, I had never really taken finals, and, you know, in high school, we pretty much just sort of learned how to cut classes and, you know, have a good time, and... When I got to college, I decided I wanted to be a good student and to learn, and uh, I went to the library right before my finals of study, and I was walking through, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw the word Brooklyn, and when you're from Brooklyn and you see anything about Brooklyn, you're immediately, uh, you know, fascinated, and it was before the movie, and I pulled Last Exit of Brooklyn from the shelf, not knowing what I was holding, and um, I started to read, and it basically, you know, blew my mind. It changed my life, and I mean, for a year, I kept that book out of the library. I just kept checking it out and reading it over and over again and um, um, when I got to film school I uh, I had to prepare three short films um, to make three short movies and so I started reading my favorite authors who wrote short stories and um, uh, the first book I read was Songs of the Silent Snow Selby's collection of short stories and the first film I did at film school was called Fortune Cookie which was based on one of his um, short stories um, and then when I graduated uh, film school. I, I started to read novels of my favorite authors, and um, then I stumbled on um, Requiem for a Dream, which uh, I picked up and I was excited to read, but I only got about halfway done. Not because it wasn't a great book, but because um, it was so close to all these issues I had been writing and all these ideas I had been playing with, but it was written by a much better writer 20 years before I was writing. So I got very depressed and I just put it on my shelf. And years later when we were cutting pie, Eric Watson, my producer, asked if he could borrow it. He was going on a ski trip with his family. And I said, sure. And when he came back, he said that it ruined his vacation, but that we have to make this movie. And so um, I read the book and finished the book. And I said, you know what, you're right. And 
and we were off to the races. So I guess um, the first thing we did was um, we called Selby to see if he'd be interested. And me and Eric took him out to dinner in, in Los Angeles where he lives. And uh, he's one of the most uh, amazing uh, people I've ever met. Just incredibly sweet and, and giving. And uh, he was excited. So um, we optioned it for $1,000, which back in the cunning pie days was a lot of money and uh, was very hard to get. And, um, and then slowly but surely I started to turn it into a screenplay. Let's talk more about this movie. Uh, Jennifer. Jennifer was, um, Jennifer, I had known about Jennifer for a long time, I guess, Once Upon a Time in America, which was her film debut. And I've always been a fan for a long time, and um, I just hadn't seen her um, in a while. And uh, when she came into Reed, she just blew us away. Um, it was pretty much clear that she was the best uh, person we had seen um, for many reasons. Beyond her staggering beauty um, she had just come to a great maturity with her craft um, I don't know there's sort of there's sort of two types of actors out there there's actors that you know really just want to be um, celebrities and then there's actors who believe in the craft and uh, one day may end up like um, Ms. Ellen Burstyn um, and I think Jennifer's been doing it for long enough that um, for her it's really about uh, it's about the work and trying to do really good work and I was attracted to that um, Tappy Tibbins. Let's talk a little bit about Tappy. I'm sure there's a bunch of questions about Tappy. Tappy is um, not in the novel. He's a character I created. In the novel, uh, Ellen Burstyn's character, Sarah, watches a tremendous amount of uh, TV. Um, but um, the TV that she watches is soap operas and game shows. It's a whole mishmash of stuff. And we sort of didn't really want to date this film. We wanted to try and create an alternative sort of time period. Um, almost like a fable. Now, it couldn't be a fable forever because, you know, it, it, it could be set in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. It's just, you know, it's somehow modern day. Um, but as soon as you put a certain type of TV on the TV, a certain type of programming, I think you immediately date the film. So um, I used a character that I created a long time ago called Tappy Tibbins, which was a character from a screenplay I wrote right out of film school called Dreamland, which was about a young fortune teller in Coney Island trying to um, get out of fortune telling and get on with his life. It was kind of a crazy idea, and uh, no one ever gave me any money to do it. Um, so those characters just sort of hung out in the back of my head. And one of the main characters was this character, Tappy Tibbins, which was sort of based on all the self-motivational guys out there, Tony Robbins for one, but a lot of other people as well. And um, over the years, I just created a whole sort of um, alternative um, self-help uh, philosophy that this character preaches, which is based on the month of fury, which is 30 days to revolutionize yourself. And um, it's three things you have to do to revolutionize your life. And the two first two things, number one is um, no red meat. Number two is no refined sugar. And number three, which isn't in the movie, um, isn't going to be revealed right now. And you're going to have to search on the Internet and try and figure it out um, because we're not telling anyone. Um, this scene also is not in the novel. Um, believe me, most of the scenes are in the novel. I'm <laughs> just happening to be picking out, picking out the things that aren't. This is based on just something I did as a kid. Um, we used to sneak into buildings in Coney Island and 
go to the top of them and uh, throw things off of them. They weren't always paper airplanes, but a lot of time they were. Um, and I, one time that we did it, we set off the alarm. And uh, when I was trying to figure out a f sort of very filmable romantic scene between my two lead characters, um, I decided to pull on something for my own life. I think I was um, talking about Coney Island. Um, I grew up about five miles from Coney Island, and um, Coney Island was sort of always the forbidden uh, world um, because it was kind of dangerous, but it was also extremely, extremely fun because of the amusement park and also beautiful just because of the aesthetic of it. And um, for years, I've been sort of feeding off of it artistically, and um, it's just really influenced me as, as sort of an... As, as, as a filmmaker and sort of the magic I wanted to catch. So when I had the chance to move this film from the Bronx to Coney Island, um, and Selby didn't mind, Selby was like, yeah, it's the same culture. I was really, really um, excited to sort of bring it home. So all these locations in this movie are locations from my youth that I grew up in. Um, everything from where the Yentas hang out to um, the handball courts are in the background of certain scenes. Um, it's all, it's all from, it's all very personal. Let's talk a little bit about Ellen Burstyn. Um, I didn't really know what I was getting involved with when I cast Ellen Burstyn. I had known she was a great, great actor in the 70s, but probably because of all the ageism and sexism uh, out there when it comes to casting movies, um, she hasn't really done a great performance since the late 70s, and um, I had no idea what was going to happen, and but I knew she had the skills, and um, I knew she really, really was all about the craft, and I knew she was doing, had been doing a lot of theater all those years. And anyway, after I cast her, I went to um, see her um, play. She was doing a play up in uh, Hartford called um, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which uh, at the time I wasn't familiar with. And when I went up there, I was just completely blown away because um, her performance was unbelievable but also um, anyone that knows that play knows that she was rehearsing for this character of Sarah Goldfarb every day for the six months that she was doing the play um, and then working with Ellen was just unbelievable um, most actors you know you can give them a note and uh, they'll incorporate it in the next take Ellen, you could give her as many notes as you want. You can tweak as many lines as you want. Uh, you could sit there for five, you know, give her five or six notes, and she just bounces and bings between them and just completely, completely hits each one on the nose. And at the end, she'll just do a little extra corkscrew that will just completely screw you up, but it's completely great and completely blows your mind, even though you don't really know what it is that you just saw. So working with her was just... Um, an unbelievable pleasure to execute um, her character in this film. She she loses uh, 40 pounds during the course of the film. Um, was just sort of a real technical nightmare. Um, now at the beginning of the film, she's wearing a 40 pound uh, 40 pound fat neck is what we called it. It's a prosthetic, but uh, right beneath her chin, there's a line. There would be a, there's a line if you were actually shooting from underneath. But uh, that goes all, the prosthetic goes all the way down to um, all the way down the front of her chest, and um, 
it took her about it took about four hours to put the prosthetic on and off during the day, um, and it was really really hard because the glue would just go, seep into her skin, and after they you know slowly peeled off the prosthetic, they'd have to use these hot towels to pull the glue out. And uh, you know, Ellen's turning 68 on December 7th, and um, you know, she had to perform with, I think, ultimately to make the illusion complete, she had four different prosthetic necks, um, a 40-pound fat suit, a 20-pound fat suit, something like nine different wigs. Well, so far, we've only seen two of them. She had the gray wig that she has at the beginning of the film, and now she's into the orange wig. Um, and so many different makeups and, and, and all these different changes in wardrobe. And even though technically um, it was staggering as far as where her character had to be, she completely took the challenge as just in a, in a way that was just totally professional, totally excited. There'll be a lot of shots, which I'll try and point out over the course of the film, where Ellen's actually, you know, doing stuff in a performance to hide the technical limitations of the fat suit or the technical limitations of the prosthetics to try and bring them to life. There are times when she uses her hand to actually block, I think it's going to come up in a second, to actually block the line that the camera would pick up. This to me is one of my favorite um, um, favorite scenes. Um, it was an early on idea. It was an idea of here are these here are my two characters in love, but they're actually you know trying to connect, but there's still so many walls between them keeping them apart. In many uh, movies, uh, you know the sex scene is just sort of soft porn, um, and. Uh, I, I just didn't want... I mean, the last sort of really good sex scene I saw in a movie was in The Player. It was that sort of long, uh, soft, uh, short, uh, short focus shot of um, Tim Robbins um, making love with the percussion drum. I don't know if you remember it, but it was, uh, it was a really good sex scene. So I, I try to sort of use the sex scenes to help push the story forward as, as much as possible. So um, coming up is this fade into white that sort of comes from something I started working on in Pi, which is sort of, you know, this sort of moment of, of transcendence of some type. And I think it's, we tried to use it whenever a character was going off into their pipe dream. This scene is uh, my homage to Jan Svankmeyer, uh, a big influence on me. I probably started filmmaking mostly in animation. Um, when I was in college, I was a social theory major. <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, my roommate would end up, uh, was an animator, and he would end the year with a, a bunch of movies, and I would end the year with a bunch of papers with B-minuses on them. And so um, I started to work with him in animation and eventually moved towards live action. And um, one of the great, great animators is this Czech animator, Svank Meyer, who um, does a lot of stuff like before and after shots and uh, gave me the influence for, for the sequence. This is really a very important scene in the movie. Um, it really sets up the idea of before and after in drug use, which is what I was really, really interested in. I was um, really never interested in um, the paraphernalia and the whole sort of um, drug culture. You know, I never really wanted to make a junkie movie. But what's so interesting to me is that how you can take something um, be it a drug or be it um, any type of substrate and how it can just change your state. 
from being a place where you're sort of down on yourself and you're looking at yourself and you feel like crap and then suddenly you get high and um, you feel great. Oh, right here, Ellen Burstyn. The reason her hand is on her face is not because she chose that as an actor but because she was doing me a favor as a director to hide a, uh, to hide a crease from the prosthetics. Um, and that was the magic of Ellen Burstyn was that she was able to suddenly... Um, use any part of her body, any limitation from the technical element, and turn it into part of the character to bring it to life. Um, and now we go into the Yenta scenes, which uh, for me are, are some of the most fun scenes because um, they really relate to my growing up in Brooklyn. I mean, you grow if you drive around this area, you will see these women there hanging out um, spending the days and uh, and just uh, living that type of life. That's Marsha Jean Kurtz, the, the woman who plays Ray, um, the woman with the curly dark brown hair who I just love. She came into the uh, she came, <laughs> she makes me laugh so much. She came into the uh, into the casting room and just literally uh, I have never done this and I actually nearly fell out of my chair laughing. Um, just really completely got it. Cindy Lamette used her. She was actually in Dog Day Afternoon. She was one of the bank tellers. Um, so it was, it was really a thrill to work with her. And then, of course, the other, there's Louise Lasser, who uh, is Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, who uh, I'll tell you, it, you know, wasn't much of a stretch for her to play Mary Hartman. She is just an incredible original as far as, uh, as, far as you know, humor and, uh, and, and personality goes. And uh, Mrs. Scarlini, who's all the way on the left of the screen right there, is one, in one of my favorite movies. She was in Jacob's Ladder. She plays a, a nurse at a hospital who has these horns on her head. And when she came in to read for me, I was like, uh, she definitely has the part. Um, here's a perfect example of trying to mix styles. We had um, Tyrone talking about, uh, you know, Tyrone using a, the term like dynamite, which is such a Jimmy Walker 1970s term, and uh, you know, yet he's wearing you know very very 90s clothes and uh, and uh, you know just really mixing the aesthetics because we felt that slang you know like clothing styles come in and out of style, um, and so that uh, it, we can mix them all together, and you know with the modern technology with modern day cars. Um, and just sort of hopefully try and create a timeless feel because ultimately this film is about addiction. It's about uh, human, the human struggle with addiction, which we felt was an age, age old story that went all the way back in time, all through human history and had no time period and probably was a struggle that when we were amoebas in the primordial soup, we were searching for carbon molecules to get high off of. And this film was about how you can use anything to get high off of how anything could be used to fill that hole. Ultimately, you know, Requiem for a Dream is about the lengths people go to escape their reality. Um, and that when you escape your reality, you create a hole in your present because you're not there. You're chasing off a pipe dream in the future. And then you'll use anything to fill that vacuum. So it doesn't matter if it's coffee, if it's tobacco, if it's TV, if it's heroin, if it's ultimately hope. You'll use anything to fill that hole. And when you feed the hole, just like the hole on Jared's arm, it'll grow and grow and grow until eventually it will devour you. Um, 
this scene is based on a, a location and something that happened in my own life. I once met, went to meet a girl I had a big crush on out at that pier in Coney Island, and um, I just remember walking out to see her and thinking about how perfect the world is. And the dreams that Selby painted in the book were just really, really long and hard to execute. They were beautiful, but just um, really, really vast in scale. And I had to simplify it and try and reduce it to a single image. This, for me, is one of, um, I think, Marlon's best moments in the film. You can really, really see what type of dramatic actor he is. Um, the moments he takes, the time he takes, the intensity he feels without pushing anything. You know, Cassie Marlon was, uh, was a really, I think, awesome decision and uh, a very, very, um, you know, a difficult one because here was a guy who basically... Um, was sort of recognized as a comedian. And a lot of people sort of wondered, you know, what we were doing. But I've always seen Tyrone as a very, very sort of, you know, light character in the sense that I wanted him to bring a lot of lightness and warmth into the film. Um, and when Marlon came into the room, it was clear that he understood the difference between being a comedian and performing and being an actor and being. And he expressed that to me and said he wanted to work towards that. And... Um, with the tremendous charisma he has, because I think there's no doubt that when you see him, he's a complete movie star. He pops off the screen, and uh, you just want to like him. And I think think that was really important for the characters, for all the characters in the film, that you like them because of the intense place that they go. You know, when you do a Hollywood movie, um, you know, you can never do an opening scene like we did in this film. You can never show your lead characters being in a fight. You can show a flawed character, but you can't show that the character, um, you know, has some serious, serious darkness um, like my two characters had. You can't basically paint a real character. I mean, you can show a character that basic that that has, you know, that isn't can't doesn't have the girl of his dreams or something. But you can't show a character that can't relate to his mom, and you can't show a mom that can't relate to her son. Um, that's way, way too intense. Um, so. When we create a film like this, I knew that the audience was going to need as much connection to these characters as possible because they weren't used to meeting characters like this, characters that were actually more like people you may meet in your own life. Um, this scene, by the way, was done by my college roommate, uh, the guy who turned me into fil a filmmaker, Dan Schrecker, with his partner, Jeremy Dawson. Uh, me and Jeremy and Dan and Eric Watson formed a company called Amoeb Proteus, and they did all the special effects for this movie. And... Actually, it's a tremendous, even though they're very invisible, um, there's about 150 digital effects in this movie. A lot of them are very, very subtle. I'll try and point out a bunch of them. Um, but that was the idea behind Amoeb Proteus, was to do images that were nearly invisible, sort of like the feather in Forrest Gump, something that was happening on screen and that was magical but could be happening anyway. And I think for a film like this, it was important. Of course, that scene you just saw was complete fantasy and completely over the top. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's coming, being motivated out of Ellen Burstyn's head. But anyway, so the, what I was talking about is that, you know, these characters, I think, you know, come from the novel by Hubert Selby Jr. and are very real and very truthful. And... Um, I think, you know, a lot of films that we see, you see these characters that are just, you know, basically one-dimensional with one sort of hole missing and chasing after one dream. 
and uh, it's, it doesn't really work that way, I don't think. Uh, Sean Gallette, what can I say? For anyone who didn't know, that is uh, Max Cohen from Pi. Um, and I think he does a remarkable job. I was kind of excited. Uh, um, that isn't his actual hair. Um, but uh, since, you know, I sort of told him that for now on, whatever movie we do, I'm going to do something fucked up with your head. Because in Pi, of course, he shaves himself bald. And here in Requiem, he, uh, you know, has probably the worst possible haircut possibly. But I think he did such a great job. Now, that's Samya Shoab, um, who was the next-door neighbor to Max Cohen. I tried to use all the actors from Pi over in this film um, just because I, I like the idea of working with people that you've had great relationship and connection with. She did a great job. And right here, watch this moment. Ellen totally improvised that. That was a moment where it was perfect for Sarah's character just to basically try and lower the weights. Dr. Bill told me uh, that uh, I gave him most difficult direction of his career, which was um, I told him not to look at Sarah once in the scene. And he said it was just so hard to play that because it's so, you know, it, it's so typical just to look at the other character. And the truth is, I mean, beyond beyond uh, the necessity for this moment in the film not to look at her, um, one of my pet peeves is how actors are constantly looking at each other through entire scenes. This is my great uh, hip-hop... Uh, you know, finale, and I guess it's a good time to talk about hip-hop montage. Uh, this is a technique um, that I sort of been evolving through Pi and actually start. Actually, I think I first started on that first um, Hubert Selby Jr. short film I did. Um, there was a montage in that, in that, that I had to show that uh, this character was doing really, really well. And I didn't want to do one of those cheesy sort of montages where the music comes on and the character's really successful. I wanted to try and do something very different. And so I sort of reached back to um, my sort of uh, growing up in the 80s, listening to hip-hop music. And there's been hip-hop, uh, you know, music, rap, and there's been hip-hop dance, uh, you know, break dancing, and there's been hip-hop art, graffiti. And there's been films about hip-hop, but there hasn't really been the use of hip-hop um, techniques used as a narrative technique to help push the story forward. Um, and the idea was to basically take images and sounds and to sample them and to tell a story with them. Um, and it actually really paid off really, really well in this movie. Um, in Pi, it, it sort of connected with um, Max Cohn's obsessiveness when he took the pills and when he locked the door. Um, in Requiem, since uh, addiction is so much about obsession, it's really, really come to fruition, that technique. Um, because, um, A, it connects all the different drugs. Uh, it shows you that these pills are the same as the heroin, which is the same as coffee, which is the same as the TV. That they're all deeply connected because I'm shooting them in the same type of way. Um, and that was a big point of the film. And also I wanted to show how addictive they were and uh, how addiction is about repetition and about obsession. Um, so I think, I think it worked really well. Then combining that with Brian Emmerich's work, our sound designer, which is just, you know, basically taking the normal sounds of, uh, of different shots and then really warping them out as the film gets more and more warped, worked really well. Speaking of Brian Emmerich, he was responsible for this track. Um, beyond being a sound designer, he's uh, more known as a musician. He plays bass for a band called Fetus. And uh, I asked him to put this together, which was sort of a klezma version of uh, a cha-cha. 
I sort of was thinking of, you know, Bugs Bunny dancing on uh, Porky Pig's head or Elmer Fudd's head, uh, you know, like rubbing in his face during this scene because I want it to pay off in, in, in that the sort of climactic scene of uh, Ellen sort of freak out in the apartment. Um, um, and that uh, I think he did a pretty good job. Here we go again with a hip-hop sequence. This was for how you roll a blunt. I wouldn't know anything about rolling blunts. And... Um, I just love this scene. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be in the outtakes. I don't think we put it there, but uh, the first few times that Marlon did this, he was really serious, and I told him, you know, this. I was kind of, I don't know, I was pressed for time, and I told him, <laughs> I told him, okay, do it again, but this time don't do it like a serial killer. And <laughs> he gave me a lot of shit for being so mean to him. He's like, you call me a serial killer? What the fuck is that? Um... We were really pressed for time, actually, uh, during during this sequence. Um, we were shooting out in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and it was a mob scene. I mean, Marlon Wayans in Flatbush, Brooklyn is like Jesus Christ coming back to Jerusalem. He was, you know, there were probably like 500 16-year-olds trying to rape him every time he, he had to go to a meal. It was it was a it was a security nightmare. Um, and also, we were just so pressed for time. It was actually a real case of karma. Um, when I shot pie, I you know did it all guerrilla style, and you know meaning we were on the run and gun, and we didn't get any permits, and we stole every shot. And of course, when we did Requiem, it was you know it was a union show, and we had to do all the permits. And we got this uh, cop who was uh, the head cop of uh, the permits, and he was like, "Who's shooting this movie?" And someone was like, "Oh, this guy Darren Aronofsky." And he's like, "Oh, I know that guy. That's that guy who talks shit about my department, who stole all these shots." And so he was really, really strict and really, really rude and. Uh, we had to get all our shots in time, and of course, it created quite, quite some pressure. This is um, once again a personal, uh, a, a personal shot for me. Um, you know, sitting out on those rocks in Coney Island, I spent a lot of time out there. Um, spent a lot of my life as an angstville teenager, uh, writing, uh, writing really bad poetry. But um, it's just, you know, I kind of like behind him that it was Coney Island and sort of Jared's neighborhood and behind uh, Jennifer is, is Manhattan, Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach, which is more of where her neighborhood is. And they're sort of meeting right in the middle of Brighton Beach. And it's just a nice connection there. Now, if you look close, there's King Neptune, played by Rabbi Abraham Abraham. And this I call the um, airplane shoot up um, because... An airplane, whenever I used to hang out on the rocks, the air, that, that was sort of in the flight line of JFK, and you'd always hear an airplane. So I used that sort of real-life thing of an airplane, that airplane sound, to take us and move us into the next stage of the film, which I really think this is when the addictions are really taking hold. This shot, you will see a lot of it on the um, behind-the-scenes footage. Um, there's a whole sequence of how we did this, um, and it was our first use of this robotic camera. But I think the most impressive thing about it is how Maddie moves from day, Maddie, D, my DP, Maddie Libatique, moves from daytime into nighttime. And here, the drugs stop working. The world slows down, and suddenly it all sucks. And for me, it's all about the Kronos. And Clint, of course, but the Kronos. Uh, boy, do they feel. And you could hear Brian starting to bug out with the sound effects. 
which is so nice. This was a really hard optical to get. We wanted to black out exactly when the music ended. It's the problem with uh, going opticals versus digital. Eventually it'll all be digital. And once again, I proved to the world that I'm more of a pornographer than I am a filmmaker. I really enjoy um, enjoyed shooting this stuff, <laughs> this shot, and it was because of um, it's because of the actors and of how um, how much fun they had with it. I mean, sex scenes can be so much fun to shoot. Um, the best sound design I like in that sequence is you can hear the kids playing outside, and uh, it circles the room. Um, if you guys have 5.1 in your in your house, you can hear the kids circling the room. And I just sort of really love that playfulness. This is the Sarah Goldfarb hip hop sequence which is her basically, it's a way of showing her losing weight real quick. Basically a couple, you know, a month goes by and, you know, 10, 15 seconds of film. And uh, hopefully it's entertaining to the audience. There's my mom second from the end on the right. And that's a Jay Naidu playing the uh, mailman, who uh, was also in Pai, he played the next door neighbor, um, the next door neighbor's uh, boyfriend. And this takes us uh, into perhaps, um, for me, the, my favorite scene, the scene I'm most proud of and the scene I uh, really, really motivated to make uh, this movie for. Um, when I read this in the book, it's a 15-page it's a scene in the book. It's a 10-minute uh, long scene in a 100-minute in a mo- long movie. And... Um, for me, what it's it, it's it's what the movie is all about. It's about being so close to someone and not being able to say "I love you," not being able to connect. You notice I'm slimmer. Yeah, I guess you are, Ma. Twenty-five pounds. We tried to, you know, basically, we took out all the bells and whistles because we just really wanted the actors to go off. Um, and we sort of broke it down into three sections. Um. The first section was the sort of the light side section, and you could see we're on the light side of their faces, basically, um, because basically things are good. What kind of business? And later in the scene, uh, when Jared, when Harry realizes that his mom is on drugs and on speed and grinding her teeth, we cross the line, and uh, we use the camera to sort of help us cross the line. We start on this side and we sort of spin to the other side, which is the dark side. So as they argue, they're on the dark side. And then when Sarah has her great confession at the end, which for me is one of the one of the great moments I've ever been involved in and had the honor to capture is Ellen Burstyn's performance in that moment, which is coming up. Um, we go back to the light side. Make me forget. We shot this all in a day and a half, ten minutes of film. What I want to tell you is that. And uh, it, w- it was remarkable because um, most performances you see, um, it's, a, it's an assemblage of a lot of different shots, a lot of different takes to create a performance. Ellen Burstyn in, uh, in, in this sequence, um, everything pulled um, is basically from one, from a single take. Um, and it's not that she only did one good take. It's that she did three unbelievable takes, but um, each take 
was completely unique and different and could not be combined with the other, any of the other takes. So we had to basically choose one and commit to it. And when you watch her get into the flow and into the zone, I mean, we could have just let, you know, without cutting away from her for seven minutes. I mean, she just rides it up and down and left and right as the emotions pour through her. And I just, you know, it's remarkable, a remarkable thing to experience. And you'll see it right after. Um, now, this is the shot that brings us over to the dark side. It was a really hard shoot to do. But basically what it does is it starts on the other side of the line, and we basically bring the audience across the line. Now we're on the dark side of their faces, the angry part. You're on diet pills, ain't you? I told you I, I'm going to a specialist. That's what I thought. You make a croak of I love that shot because um, for me, it was a real challenge to try and visualize uh, what Selby was describing that was going on in Harry's head during that shot, which is Harry basically um, is feeling great about himself because he got his mom a TV and he's got his life together, but something's off and something's wrong. And then he can't figure out what's off and what's wrong and it's something about some sound he hears and he hears this weird sound and he can't tell where it's coming from where's that sound coming from and it's just an incredibly beautiful beautiful text and um, I think the shot was sort of an attempt to sort of express that to visualize um, you know Harry's real uh, you know curiosity of where it's coming from before and also his connection and final realization that it is purely from Sarah his mom um, so it, it, it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to do I mean when you when you can figure out shots that can actually sort of you know you can never capture text you can never capture words but when you find shots that somehow you know can feel a similar way or something can express it that's you know that's what the great reward is and that's how me and Maddie see what we do you know we see ourselves as expressionists we see ourselves as trying to come up with a visual style that's born out of the narrative, that's born out of the story. People ask me if I'm going to use the same narrative stuff in, in my next film, and, and the answer is, of course, not. It's, it's about trying to figure out, um, you know, what your movie is about, what the theme is about, and then creating a visual language out of it. This is where the one performance from Ellen starts. And she just goes, I mean, up and down. <laughs> I could watch this over and over again. I think I'm going to watch a little bit of it with you right now. Your father. When the end of the shot comes, you'll notice that Ellen gets a little bit misframed. And uh, after I called cut, I, um, I turned to uh, Maddie and I said, you know, I was sort of pissed. I was like, how could you misframe her right at the end of the shot? And he turned around and looked at me and Tears were flowing out of his eyes, and he was like, Man, I steamed up the eyepiece. I couldn't see her for the last three minutes of the shot. <laughs> so Maddie right now is looking through, you know, fogged up window. Make the bed or wash the dishes. I do them. But why should I? I'm alone. Your father's gone. You're gone. She's just right on the edge. I got no one to care for. What have I got, Harry? It's not the same. They don't need A me. remarkable performer.
she told me after after she did this take that um this happens um you know when she does a show on Broadway it happens once once a show where she's just completely in it and uh when she finished this movie she said it happened to her three times where she was just completely you know completely the character completely in the moment and uh this was one of them and I'll point out the other two of them to you as they come up this was a um this shot um which I'm really proud of is a um we were we were trying to figure out how to save time and how to shoot this end of the scene elegantly and I just realized the way Maddie set up the light coming through the windows that I could do a silhouette shot and that uh, I could really use their body language them separated to really really express um, you know what the point of the scene is is that they're trying to reach out they're trying to cross all this light that is between them but they just can't connect and there is a hug but it's only for a moment you know then it's gone and in a second harry will be gone and i want everyone to listen very closely to their to their right stereo speaker because great sound design moment fridge comes on and it's just that sound of you know the fridge cooler turning on and it's introducing that uh Maybe she's not completely alone. Once again, this is like the scene with Jennifer in the bathroom before and after. It shows you he's miserable before the drugs. And then getting high takes it all away. And for me, that's what the movie is about. I get a lot of my inspiration from the New York City subway. A long time ago, I made it a rule that I'm not allowed to read or do anything but look at other people on the, on, on the train. Thanks, man. One time I just saw a couple of deaf people uh, communicating on the train and they, the, the way they were speaking was just so like um, alive and, and, and intense um, and poetic that I decided to make uh, Brody my drug dealer hearing impaired, um, which was great. Um, and when this guy came in, it was his idea to um, speak this line. And uh, when he did it, just gave me and my... Uh, my co-producer Scott Franklin chills down our back because it was just so intense and he was a great kid he was like an 18 year old uh, 18 year old wrestling champion high school kid and chance for him to work with Marlon Wayans he was psyched and then fall starts and um, this is the fall reprise and it's you know we go back to the same overture music um, Clint uses a lot of repetition in his music in the same way that I use a lot of repetition in my images we both feel that through repetition you can actually create a whole different level of emotional response from your audience. And uh, this is, you know, when uh, the overture returns and uh, fall begins. And uh, summer is about uh, hope, it's about potential. And fall now is uh, about when the pain begins, when the truth begins, when the fall starts. It's when the drugs start to disappear, when the drugs stop working. This is sort of a, still a glimpse to summer. For me um, and Maddie, this was a big fall lighting setup. Um, if you notice, uh, all of the light is artificial. And it's a cool light, except for that one warm light source, which is right now on the right side of the screen by Jared. And uh, me and Maddie came up with 
an entire sort of um, lighting sequence for for this movie. Um, I think sort of our sort of we like to start with theory um, and come up with sort of like what the theoretical narrative of 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 the movie is and how to express that in light. And since we had the summer, fall, winter structure, we were able to say that, okay, in summer we want sort of this magical, um, realistic, uh, natural light, and that over the course of the film by winter we want to turn it into artificial realism. So um, it's a bunch of hogwash, but it allows you to basically try and figure out then, once you have the theory, how to execute that technically. And for us it meant that in summer we wanted, you know, the light to be, um, you know, a warm sun. And uh, by winter we wanted it to be purely artificial light, meaning uh, fluorescence and uh, sodium halides. And that fall should be a struggle between those two light sources. And right now you could still see some natural sunlight through, through the window, but it's very, very light, it's very indirect, and the main source is the artificial light from the TV. Um, for me, that scene with Ellen is, is a critical scene in the film because it's when she decides to break the rules and go from one pill to two pills, and it's actually when the whole hip-hop sequence breaks for the first time. It breaks twice in this film, once for Harry and once for Sarah. And what I mean by that is you don't see her swallowing it right away. You see when it, the pill hits the palm of her hand, her taking a beat and thinking about whether or not she is going to go forward with putting another pill in her hand and basically surrendering to the dream. And that's what she's done. And immediately there's the consequence of the fridge. This is a footbridge in my neighborhood. We call it the Blue Bridge. And um, back in the 70s and 80s, it was very dangerous because people would... Um, often get mugged on it, and uh, I just love the aesthetic of it, and uh, also the fact that the train came by was great. Now, of course, we couldn't cover the uh, New York City subway, so what we did is we just sent someone down the track with a walkie, and they told us when the train was coming, guerrilla style once again. Um, I love the sound design in that sequence of it spinning around the room. It's my favorite device on the mixing board are those little joysticks where you could actually move the uh, sound to different speakers. If you give me that in the editing room, I'm sh you got to add an extra two days to the budget. Don't tell the producers that, though. Um, but uh, now the sound design starts really whacking out, and Brian starts going off. Um, that last sequence, that was uh, nails on chalkboards and stuff. And also we start to set up the arm here. In the novel, the arm sort of just sort of lurches on to Harry and I, I felt like to really really sell to an audience of what's going to happen to Harry we really really had to start it earlier so we built it in that he had a little bit of a wound now every night uh, when I came home from set I used to watch um, I used to wa I try and watch great movies you know to keep myself inspired and also to clear my mind and this uh, this at this point I think I was watching Seven Samurai and you could totally see I was not doing nearly as good a job, but just the idea of the profile behind Harry and the way their bodies are blocked is totally straight from Kurosawa. Um, and, you know, I think Jennifer's performance really starts to shine here. This is this is where I think she just shows the things that she just hasn't done before. It's great. This closing shot, a lot of people were like, why are you hanging there? And for me, I think it's abstract, but the reason I kept this sort of towel floating was um, 
I just sort of love the out of focusness and how she says I love you um, and that the world is out of focus. This was a crazy, um, a crazy, crazy digital shot. Um, we we really, really didn't know what we were doing when we shot it. I knew I wanted to do something tripped out and crazy, but it took us a lot of time and post to figure it out. Um, and it was really the accomplishment of Dan and Jeremy out of me, but to pull the shot off. Um, uh, but we basically just shot it on an extreme fisheye um, and trying to capture just sort of the extreme mental state of Sarah Goldfarb up here. And, to tr and if you notice, she's slow and he's super fast, except she speeds up right here. And uh, anyone who has 5.1 is going to kill me for that one. But um, we loved, we love, you know, using all the speakers of trying to use sound to help bring the audience into the subjective experience of the characters. Because I think, you know, there were two ways to shoot this movie. You know, this movie could have been shot dogma style. It could have been shot totally realistically, totally documentary, verite. But I felt that it wasn't the type of film I wanted to make. I really, really wanted to sort of capture the visual style of Selby's writing and what that entails is entering the subjective mind of his characters because what's great about Selby's characters is that you don't know always where the dreams start and where the dreams end. And characters float in and out of ideas. And I think that's true. I think when you're walking down the street and, uh, you know, you're not just walking down the street, which is what it would happen in a dogma movie. You go off into your mind. You're thinking about you know, your girlfriend, you're thinking about the vacation you're going to go on in three weeks, you're thinking about the fight you had with your boss, whatever, but you're off in different worlds. And I think for me that's really what I'm attracted to in filmmaking is that you can sort of just leave the guy walking down the street and sort of enter his brain and go into just all different types of crazy places. And I think a good way of doing that is combining all the different departments, especially sound, which really brings you in. This is Under the Boardwalk, um, which in my youth uh, used to be a whole playground. Um, in fact, once we, we used to light fires under the boardwalk and we almost burnt it down. But um, we used to hang out down there all the time, picking up dresses and running around like mad people. And um, they filled it up since. <laughs> they've, they've, I don't know how they did it. I guess they carted in a lot of sand, but there's very, very few places where you could actually sneak, um, sneak around underneath the boardwalk. But um, there's this one section that we were able to still get. Just a real memory of, you know, when people would run over the boardwalk, how it would sort of break your rhythm and everything that's going on. I just wanted to introduce that as a possible, you know, give a sense of the paranoia that's going on. Because ultimately, the scene is just about it's setting up the big sort of supreme ordeal, which is, you know, at the supermarket that's coming up. And also, you know, setting up um, Jared's big confrontation with Jennifer here. I like the way this is shot a lot. Um, it really, really, the final shot of this um, sequence really makes it off. It really, really is special. And, um, um, the blocking just worked really well for us here. It gives me a good moment to talk about Jared. Um, I had heard about Jared a lot when, um, you know, I was casting this part. Um, but I didn't really know his work. And um, it wasn't, you know, till I got to, you know, hear him read that I suddenly was completely a convert. Because he... Um, 
you know, he just made we, we read the scene with um, with Ellen Burstyn. You know, she wasn't cast yet, but that scene with Sarah Goldfarb when they're in the kitchen, you know, reaching out to his mom. And uh, he just, you know, and it's really hard to make someone feel something in 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 the casting room. And he was able to really sort of connect um, very very quickly. And the commitment that Jared gave to this movie is just unbelievable. But that's the shot I was talking about. That final shot, the way she looks away and is completely isolated. No, I'm just. Uh... Sean nearly killed me this day when we were shooting this sequence because. You know, he had prepared all this stuff and for this scene. And I realized that the only thing that the scene was about eating that steak. And I was just like, look, you know, don't worry about your lines. Just eat that steak. And at the end of the day, he had this big little belly filled with like steak, you know, five and a half steaks, which he had to munch down, take after take. But I think he's just incredibly lecherous and, and just does a fantastic job. Um... You know, Sean is always willing to go anywhere that the character takes him. He has he doesn't censor himself, and is just you know a really really great professional and 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 um, an exciting actor to work with. I wish you know like, you know that he gets used a lot more by other actors, by other directors, because um, I think they'd have an incredible experience. Jennifer's great. It really goes there. And uh, it gets the audiences every time. It's so much fun. I need to borrow some money. May I ask what for? Many people ask me what Sean is doing with his hand, and I like to talk about the samurai swords, which that morning we were, I looked in the room and I was like, I went to James, my production designer, who normally is perfect, and I said, James, there's one thing missing. I need samurai swords on his bed. And look, look, he's got the remote control light. But it's just the character is just perfect. Black sheets, black blankets, black silk, you know, black samurai swords, a remote control light. He's an animal. Just extremely, extremely disturbing. And once again, we have a before and after scene. We have, you know, Harry alone guilty, feeling bad. A lot of people ask me, where does he get the drugs to get high here if they're in need of drugs? And it's not that druggies have nothing. I mean, if they had nothing, they'd be in pain right now. It's just that maybe he's been holding out and has a little hidden stash that he hasn't shared, which makes just the betrayal of um, Marion that much further. But once again, he gets high. The TV goes back to normal. Uh, Marion's not sleeping with a guy with a hairy back. And we go into my favorite sequence in the film, which is yet another moment of the overture, another reprise of the overture, which starts here. And here is the infamous Snorri cam. The camera is um, attached to the actor's body. Um, we call it the Snorri cam because um, it was invented by two photographer friends of ours called the Snorri Brothers, two Icelandic photographers, and we adapted it for, for film in Pi. This is a more complex rig that has counterweights and everything. Um, but for me, it's the ultimate and subjective camera because it, com it freezes the actor in the center of the frame while the background moves around, creating, you know, a really, really, you're really stuck and locked with 
the character. Um, and I tried to have each actor, each character, have a moment with the snorri cam. Um, every character had one, but uh, Harry. Um, there was a shot I wanted to do with Harry, but we just we couldn't we couldn't afford it. We couldn't get it done. Um, and it's a cool shot, but I can't share it with you because I'm going to probably reuse it somewhere in the future. Um, and then once again, you know, for me, I love the shot um, coming up because of the body language. Just you know, the two former lovers just separated on the side of the couch. And it, it, it was a shame because we shot this and I didn't really tell the actors what to do. I said, sit down, you know, I explained the situation, I explained the shot, and it was really interesting. They went into the shot and I just kept the camera rolling. And the shot, if it goes longer, if I could have gone another 30 seconds, um, they actually do make some contact there. They actually eventually reach out slowly. And it was a really beautiful performance by both of them. But uh, I felt for the story it was better to keep them apart there. Um, and uh, Marlon, once again, is great in this. And uh, we were rushed for time once again. And he just let it out. He was just sobbing. You can't really see it that well, um, but project it, you can. And this is all in camera. Um, my producers were going crazy because I did this in camera, triple exposure. Um, and they were like, why can't you do it in post? And I was like, you know, the thing is, when you do it in camera, the chemicals actually mixing together, and it actually it changes it. It's very different effect when you do it in post. I've done a lot of scenes in supermarkets over the years. Uh, a lot of my short films were in supermarkets, and um, I've just always loved shooting in them. And uh, in Selby's book, this was a big climactic scene. And it was shot a night exterior, and it was out in a projects, and it was this tremendous scene. And there was just no way we could afford to do it um, controllably. So first I scripted it on the beach of Coney Island, and we couldn't afford that either. So somehow I just went, reached into the old bag of tricks and pulled out the old supermarket idea. Um, and it worked out pretty well. Most of the extras here are actual junkies. We had a great extra casting person. And I told her I wanted realistic people, and sure enough, she went out and uh, on the Bowery and cast real junkies. At 3 o'clock in the morning, someone had to go for a run into Manhattan to pick up heroin, and all these people were, you know, shooting up in the corners. It was, it was really quite a night. It happened to be the one night that Jared invited his mom and his grandmother to come to set. <laughs> and my dad was there also. My dad used to be the boys' dean at Bushwick High School, and uh, which is New York Post calls it the worst public high school in uh in, in Brooklyn, or actually, excuse me, the, 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 the worst uh, public high school in North America. And uh, he, my dad went over to one of the producers, Palmer, and he's like, Palmer, that guy's got a machete. Palmer's like, how do you know? He's like, I, I can tell he's carrying a machete. And uh, Palmer went over to the guy and said, um, uh, excuse me, sir, can I hold your knife? And Palmer held the guy's machete for the whole night. It's kind of funny. My dad was, you know, who knows what would have happened if there was a machete on set with the guns and everything else. Sal the Geep in the truck is played by one of the tough guys from Pi, um, Peter Cheyenne, uh, great actor and also our real estate agent. Try to make it a family affair. Um, and the, also the nice thing about doing this with the whole Florida truck and the oranges was really to help to sell the whole Florida thing. I, in the novel, it, you know, 
there was enough internal monologue to sell the fact that these guys believed that they could go down to Florida and, and score. But, it, you know, to do it in one or two scenes is just really, really hard in a movie. You have to really sell it subtly. And I felt the Florida orange and, and the truck and little mentions of Florida throughout the film. One thing that Sean improvised earlier in the scene was that his wife was in Florida. And I kept that in. It created Florida as a character so that the audience could have an easier time going for it. At this point, it's worth pointing out just to look at the transition that the characters have made. Um, Tyrone, you know, the condition of his health, the way he looks, as well as Harry, the intensity, their characters. I love Marlon in this scene. Really, really captured something distant and far. And this is um, Ellen's shot at the snowy cam. I love this scene uh, just because she, uh, she really goes for it. It's really, really tripped out and bugged out. Um, just the paranoia is just so so thick, and that was exactly how how Selby sort of painted it. Was just um, uh, the intense terror of being alone and being drugged out and going up and down from the crazy drugs. But just look at her transition from at this point from being the forty pound overweight with glasses and gray hair to this emaciated. You know her gray roots are showing completely, completely, for me, transforms herself. As you can see, it was, um, it's a different type of movie. And, um, a lot of people were, um, scared to make, uh, make this happen. And, uh, no, no one, no studio would basically back us. Everyone turned down the film. And ultimately, we had to raise the money independently. When I say we, I'm talking about me and um, my producing partner, Eric Watson. And uh, we finally found this company called Thousand Words, um, which is run by Palmer West and his partner, Jonah Smith. And the two of them, um, from the beginning, believed in this material and saw the type of movie we, we were going to try and do with this film. Um, and it was a big commitment for them because uh, it, it, it was a very, very difficult film to make. Um, but uh, they believed in it and they deserve all the kudos that they're getting now. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them. Um, another person that really pushed it forward was um, an executive at Artisan who started off actually as my lawyer um, when we sold pie to Artisan. And uh, that's Jeremy Barber, who, um, from the beginning, always pushed for this movie to happen at Artisan and eventually convinced Artisan to do a negative pickup to uh, acquire this film and distribute it for the world. This begins uh, probably the most complex sequence I've ever done on film. Um, and uh, it's uh, when we storyboarded this scene... It came out to, hold on, I'm about to get scared. One second, I gotta wait for this. Uh, here we go. 
Um, <laughs> when we storyboard this scene, it was a 56-page document for this five-minute-long sequence that all the departments had. Um, and just really is a fusion of every single department, from hair to makeup to prosthetics, costume to production design to photography to sound design to music to special effects. Every department had to work together throughout the course. And for me, that's what it's about. I mean, when people ask me what directing's about, the best uh, metaphor I give is conducting because I think you basically have an orchestra of um, all these different instruments and you basically have to get them to play together to play a single musical piece, um, which hopefully that musical piece has some theme at the core of it which can unite emotionally all the different instruments in all the different departments. So you have your violins, you have your violas, and you're trying to get all of them to sort of deliver one requiem, one vision. Um, this was a really hard special effect to do, the one coming up. Um, basically how to go in there and frame by frame, by hand, rotoscope. It's called rotoscoping. It's an animation technique where you go in, you basically just outline each frame. And when you have outlined all of them, then you could go in and basically shift it and put in this crazy static-o-matic effect that Jeremy Dawson came up with. Together, I think it's great. Look at the things he's holding in his hand, that little thing. It doesn't have the effect on it. I mean, that was the detail we went to to try to bring the illusion together. And, you know, the sound design is there to, you know, make those little static punches. Um, and, of course, Maddie, the DP, had to work you know, extensively with the sound, with the special effects department. Music is building in the background to eventually what will be insane. Um, and of course, there's Ellen Burson's performance, just going from, and you know, she's working off of inanimate objects. I mean, she's, you know, the only Ellen Burson there. And uh, she had to create all this fear and all this existence and life on her face. Basically, her room comes apart and it turns into a, it turns into the set of Tappatibbins. And um, it was something that happened in the book that I just loved and uh, wanted to bring it. Um, the man who's about to talk uh, is Brian Costello, who um, was uh, worked with me during the film and actually has a pie sticker on the bottom of his thing. It took him a long time to get this because he wasn't really an actor, but great face. And then the true, you know, cha-cha starts, you know, Bugs Bunny dancing on Elmer Fudd's head. And that was completely the inspiration for this. See, so you give a kid too many cartoons, uh, too much Lucky Charms as a kid, and uh, who knows what the hell they're going to do with it. This is, this is my interpretation of, of all that pain. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We had this huge, huge disco ball in there to shoot this. And the disco ball, I mean... When you hung out on the set, because the dots were so large and they were everywhere, you just got totally, totally vertigo and dizzy and nauseous. You had to keep your eyes shut, you know, in between takes. Um, and this is the, you know, insane. This was a really, really hard sequence to mix to try and get all the different sounds and all the different, you know, surround sounds working together to build to, you know, one vision and still let. Um, Sarah Goldfarb, the proper Sarah Goldfarb, not Red Sarah, to leak through. I love the makeup on Red Sarah there. Just, she's insane. And that's Ellen. I mean, 
It's all Alan. Um, won't tell you how we did the fridge. Can't give away all the magic tricks, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Eventually, though, the fridge started burning. We had to put it out. That's when we stopped shooting. Winter time. Once again, the winter reprise, the overture again, a new season. Uh, this shot was done with a robotic camera, the Milo. One pass is done on Ellen walking down the street, and then the next pass is uh, just at a much slower speed. People running through the frame. And not just running, just walking, but the way the uh, lens was left open, it created a, um, a smear effect. Uh, this the camera was really hard construction. We had to stick the camera. You know, I wanted to shoot. You know, shooting inside a car is so hard, and I wanted to do something different. And if you notice, each car scene we get closer and closer, but it's from the same same point of view. Eventually, we end up at that type of magnification. That's my dad. In his first performance, it happens to be with Academy Award winner Alan Burstyn, uh, and he actually improvised a line. It's a good actor, isn't he? And that's my production designer, James Chinlin, the brilliant James Chinlin. Um, what James is unbelievable. For me, this scene is, is so important. Um, they, we, we ended up shooting this guerrilla style because we couldn't afford to shoot on the New York City subways once again. And so, you know, we went with the, you know, Ms. Burstyn, a $250,000 camera, and we took a train into the worst parts of Brooklyn in the middle of the night. And for me, the reason it was so important is because um, everyone who lives in New York has had that experience of seeing someone like that on a train and uh, can relate to seeing one of those bag ladies. Basically, that's what she looks like. And uh, yet she's so, we know her so well that it's so heartbreaking to see that. Um, I want to talk about James, but I just, I don't want to distract you from the performance coming out, which is the second moment that I talked about earlier where Ellen said she had three moments on this. And this, to me, is unbelievable. Just the way she rides up and down. These, you know, she's surfing this whole, you know, just she's just surfing the character. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, when I wrapped her, I said few people get to play with Michael Jordan every day. And that's what I meant. I mean, she's just completely surrendering to the game, to the art, which is what, you know, Michael does when he puts the ball through the hoop. When he soars, he just becomes egoless and becomes just, complete, you know, com completely about scoring. Um, and she's just so great. That's a friend, Rob Cohen, who's in a great comedy troupe called No Time, uh, an old friend of mine from high school. And uh, yeah, he, did a, he did a great job. Although, I mean, he's the only actor that sort of, that, that was, you know, when we, when we cut this scene, we had the hardest time cutting in the other actors because she was on such a different level of performance that the other actors, even though they were great, we just couldn't cut it in with her. And I'll, I'll never forget, when she did this take, we had done three or four takes, and we had it. And I went up to her, and I said, you know, Ellen, we got it. Um, why don't you just go all the way? It would be a shame to leave here before we went. And she, her eyes just lit up. And I just, my sister was on set for the first time, and I was like, Patty, come watch this. You're going to see something. I just knew, by the way, the way her eyes lit up. And sure enough, she just went off. And I remember when it ended, the other actors were just, like, stunned, <laughs> shocked. James, my production designer, uh, yeah. unbelievable, you know, 
the amount of dedication and work he he gave to this film and just a complete original. He um he's just done such such amazing stuff. And basically what sold it to me is when he invited me to his apartment because um his he lives in a tiny apartment in Chinatown, but it's just so incredibly well crafted and the best thing is is that in in one of his um yeah. in his cabinets he has a model of his house, the exact architecture of his house, um, but it's been redesigned as a sort of beach house in Tahiti. It's kind of hard to explain, but uh, <laughs> just the imagination was fantastic. I love the way the siren sort of is going up, but the volume's going down. And this is maybe the most, uh, you know, one of the more disturbing scenes in the film in the sense that we break the hip hop montage for Harry here, like we did for Ellen before, for Sarah before, we're doing for Harry. And it's, uh, you know, basically to explain the surrendering he's gone to the dream. Basically doing anything to escape his reality, not dealing with the fact that this guy has this major infection on his arm and just is more willing to get high than to deal with it. And Jared's intensity is just right on. Right on. It breaks. Here's the payoff shot. And uh, Harry drifts off into his stoned highness. This was a mistake, actually. The uh, video camera, some dirt got on the heads and uh, created this fucked up video image, and they were like, do you want to reshoot it? And I was like, no. <laughs> it looks pretty cool. So sometimes little mistakes can actually add to, um, add to it. And that's Ben Shankman. He's actually the same actor who played the um, uh, young Hasid in uh, Pi. A lot of people don't recognize him, but he's great. And introduce uh, Keith David as Big Tim. Come on in. That's my favorite line from him when he says, come on in, because it's, it's kind of nice. And the reason I, I chose Keith is because um, he's uh, kind of charming uh, and uh, he's a good-looking guy. And I didn't want to go too extreme. I didn't want it like a really disgusting character. I, I wanted to make it somewhat more believable. But, you know, as he descends into the uh, darkness, you know. Some really great stuff comes out of Keith David for the Big Tim character. Some real intense stuff. This was hard stuff to shoot um, for everyone. But uh, we all knew we, the reason we were doing it was to really show the lens people go to escape their reality, what the film was about. So it was important about going those extra inches. It was, it was important about, you know, pushing those buttons. For some people, Big Tim is um, the most uh, the most honest of characters, and in some ways, he is. I mean, he's not. He's constantly, always um, on the level. I mean, it's it's very clear. He's trading um, drugs for pussy, and it's you know that's that's the agreement, and either take it or leave it. Um, but there's no bullshit. There's no lies. It's just very, very straightforward. In some ways, you know, he's he's on most on the level. Oh, I know it's pretty, baby. But I didn't take it out for air. And now, you know, that music, um, for me, it was 
the most shocking, <laughs> you know, to receive that as a director and be told by your composer that this is what I'm thinking about for the third act. You're like, what? <laughs> and until it started to come to life, I didn't know what the hell was going on. But what happened is um, early on, me and Clint listened to, we bought all these requiems from Mozart, Verdi, all the great requiems, and we listened to them, and we chose our favorite notes, our favorite, like, you know, moments of the music, and, and Clint sampled them and then stuck them into a, dr a drum machine and then played it percussively. Um, so then he created this really, really crazy, crazy, you know, music scape, and when we took that to the Kronos, the Kronos got really excited because they wanted to play those sharp notes over it. So they basically um, arranged it, and so it's this weird mixture of samples and, uh, and, and original live music from Kronos. And that's the really exciting part for uh, Clint's compositions and Clint's scores. Is He's an electronic musician, the combination of using real-life strings with samples. I mean, early on in the overture, there's sort of the psh, psh, of his beat, of his rhythm. And that's actually uh, samples taken from a Bruce Lee movie. That's like Enter the Dragon. So he's grabbing his samples everywhere and turning it into a completely new form for the audience. I like this sort of indecisiveness. If she's alive, if she's dead, what the hell's going on? Is she underwater? Is she not? And then we give it away. And we build, we build to the next level. And you could see the cameras moved in tighter and tighter into the characters' faces. Trying to get tighter as the intensity of the film goes deeper and deeper to, you know, more and more close-ups, just to accelerate faster and faster into a wall. The film is constructed to build to a climax. It's that climax which caused all the rating problems with the MPAA. Um, I love this nurse, by the way. Um, this this moment right here, the way she sticks out her tongue. Didn't tell her to do that. Just a great, real moment. And watch this close. Watch her face. That's a digital effect. We went in there, Mew Proteus, and we shrunk her. Just her head stays the same, but her eyes, nose, and mouth slightly shrink. And it was little effects like that that is exactly what you know we want to do with Mew Proteus really just sort of hint, express for the film a little bit more what's going on, but keep it really, really subtle. I love the paranoia here. <laughs> he plays it so well, Marlon. It's a great Dylan Baker who uh, blessed me by doing this tiny, tiny role. Um, it's such a great actor. Um, and he... Uh, he chose this little moment with uh, stealing, stealing the medicine back. I'll be back in a minute. And that's it for Dylan, which is a shame because uh, he's got just so much. He's got so much going on. I was talking about um, how the ratings was a big problem with this film, and it was it was very upsetting. Um, I think the film is very intense. Um, but I know that there are teenagers that will dig this film and will get something positive out of this movie. And, you know, it's made me really think about, you know, ratings in America. And I think it is important for there to be a rating system. Um, 
I think it's important as an individual to know what I'm going to go see in a movie. And if I was a parent, it would be important that uh, I knew what my kids were going to see and that I can make uh, intelligent choices about it. But there's clearly, you know, a big, big hypocrisy on, on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in movies. Um, and the fact that, you know, you can show as much gun violence as you want in a PG-13 movie as long as you don't show blood, I think is complete backwards thinking. I think it's more interesting to show show an audience, you know, show teenagers what a gun what a gun actually does to the human body. And I think they would get something out of it much more than just showing some A-team fantasy. You remember A-team and how, like, no one got hurt but people were just falling down dead? I think, you know, it just tells people that, you know, people die without all that mess, without all that gore. And uh, it just isn't the truth. This was That was a shot we didn't design beforehand. We just got on set and I saw it and, and we took it. It seems like the MPAA has these values from the 1950s of, uh, you know, where guns and violence is good, a la World War II, and human sexuality is bad. And sort of everything that happened in the 60s and 70s has been forgotten where, you know, in actuality, the way I look at the world is that guns and violence is bad and that human sexuality is good. So, um, you know, just things need to be rethought. And, you know, maybe this film should be for adults, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame that uh, a, lot of, a lot of adults can't bring their children if they want to to come see this film. This for Ellen was a really difficult scene, um, as you could imagine. <laughs> She was pretty. She, she was pretty terrified. But um, Selby arrived um, for the first time on set while we were shooting this stuff, and uh, he was in tears. Like he was on set for ten minutes, and he just. Oh, she's just great. For me, that's the loudest moment of the film. Is is her sort of cry there? This is a. This is a scene that didn't. That's not from the book. It came out of actually being working at Sundance, uh, at the Sundance workshop. And I got a lot of notes saying that there should be a connection between Harry and Marion into the third act. In the novel, when Harry leaves to Florida, that's it, the relationship's done, and there's no connection between them. And I, I, I agreed with them. I thought they're, you know, that a large part of this film was the struggle for this love story, and that it needed to pay off somehow. And so me and the actors, we improvised this scene, um, just playing words back and forth. The three of us wrote it together. And... Um, it, it you know it works really really nice I think because it's ultimately what it's all about. Can you come today? It's funny the um, the first time we cut this I showed it to Jennifer and uh, she said that she thought she did something a little better and it and um, this performance that is on screen now I actually at the time when I was first cutting it thought it was too much. And uh, we went with a different take. And we almost missed this great moment. Um, but uh, we looked at it again and we realized that um, that Jennifer was right, that there was a great, great, great moment there. And, uh, and it really did work. We shot this simultaneously. Um, instead of shooting it um, separately, we, we actually had two cameras that day. And they were on two different parts of the stage and connected by that phone. And, uh, you know, it was hard. You know, I had to run back and forth between the different actors. Um, but it was the best way to do it um, because they, it kept them both in the moment. I love the way, you know, we made the camera heavy here. 
um, you know, her POV, not quite, you know, focusing on his mouth, forgetting about his eyes, just, um, you know, really falling and just not getting it. It was Jay, my editor's idea, that the only time we see him is when he says a drug name. He says ECT, and he says alternative methods, all the drug things. This is the final evolution of the vibrator cam. And, um, it, you know, this is when the film takes off for the climax. This is, this is the launching ground for me, where the climax begins. This was all done digitally. What we did is we took their voice patterns, their, the, the volume, and sort of like the way a disco lamp affects the lights, we sort of made the vibration affected by the volume of their voices and, uh, and a nice, nice effect. And here it goes. All hell is about to break loose. For me, this was um, <laughs> one of the more exciting three minutes of film I ever had the chance to cut. Um, I had four different stories colliding, and I wanted it to just be as insane as possible. I wanted to take it all as far as we could. Ellen's sequence um, was really hard for her. To make it um, easier, what I did is I uh, got the camera all set to go. I got everyone really serious, and I rolled sound, and I brought in Selby. And I had Selby read the chapter of the book to Ellen right here and um, tell and just basically perform it for her. And then after he finished reading, we rolled cameras, and I called to action, and that's where the great, great moment of... Uh, Ellen got electrocuted came from. It's very, very sad. This scene, um, the chain gang, was a nightmare because even though we weren't in the south, it was night and there was so many mosquitoes. It was disgusting. So it was just horrible. It was horrible. We were getting eaten alive, but it actually added, I think, to just the discomfort. Um, and uh, me and Ellen, to do research for this, went and checked out some ECT, which actually does happen in today's world. Um, and it's used a lot for a lot of different reasons. And uh, the results are very questionable. Um, so any defenders that doesn't happen, it's not true. Um, this is actually Hubert Selby Jr.'s cameo right there. He uh, was on set. Oh, hold on. And that's, uh, that's Stanley Herman, who uh, was, you may remember, the guy on the train who uh, sings to Sean in uh, Pie. And uh, he's just an actor I like to use a lot, and in this he happens to be a real sicko. <laughs> but uh, Hubert Selby Jr. was one of my producer's ideas, and Rourke, to have him be the laughing guard. And it actually works great because you have, you know, Selby attacking and insulting his characters in the final climactic moment of the movie and on the uh, extended on the missing scenes there's an extended take of him just going off and you can <laughs> you get a good sense of his character um that of course is some of the more intense stuff the um the orgy party sex scene whatever you want to call it but uh it's all based on on truth it's all based on what goes on behind closed doors in america every day um a lot of people have said it's surreal it's over the top but um Believe me, uh, there's a lot sicker things going on at these at these places, and uh, I witnessed this firsthand. And uh, I was, you know, it was important for me to recreate it here on the screen. And 
and and show what really goes on. And uh, it just builds mathematically to um, this insane climax. And then we go to white, the true white, the transcendence. It's when I was reading Selby's book. Um, at the end, I there's this whole crazy sequence, uh, and when he goes into the surreal sequence of fighting with darkness and light. And I wasn't sure if he lived or died. And I asked Selby, um, uh, "Does he live or does he die?" And Selby was like, "Of course he lives." And I was like, "What do you mean, of course?" And he's like, "Well, he's got to suffer more." And so this was, <laughs> which is kind of sick. But this this is, uh, you know, I think this is my interpretation of his struggle with the lightness and darkness and him coming out. And so that, like Selby's books, you know, like, you know, Selby's characters in this book, all four characters are still on the downward spiral. This is just one of the payoffs. When you think about it, what's going to happen to Harry? When you think about it, what's going to happen to Sarah? What's going to happen to Marion? Perhaps the only character that has some chance to survive is Tyrone. Um, and that's, you know, not normal for a normal movie. And of course, there were pressures to try and have some type of um, happy ending, some type of catharsis. But this movie, the catharsis doesn't happen in the film. I think, you know, um, we're sort of raised on, you know, all uh, a generation of Brady Bunch generation of, you know, that the Brady Bunch at the end of the TV show will work out and Magnum P.I. at the end will be fine and every movie works out in the end and that's sort of what storytelling has become but um, as we all know it doesn't always work out in the end anyone who's lived 20 years on this planet knows um, that things get fucked up and they stay that way and I think it would have been undermining Selby's um, morality and Selby's message to in any way, you know, soften or lighten this film. Really, I mean, if you softened or lightened it in any way, I don't know if it could have, you know, made it more commercial. Um, so we tried to stay as truthful as possible um, to Selby's message. I love that moment with Jennifer where she um, she has some type of peace, yet she's still sexual and it's just, it's all confusing, it's all messed up. Marlon goes back to his mom. Tyrone thinks about being a little boy and feeling a little better. In the book it ends on Tyrone and I sort of wanted a hint as a little, little gentle hope there. Uh, but still, look where he is. And even Sarah, who finds a certain amount of happiness, she too hasn't escaped it. She's she's escaped, but it's into her mind, into her insanity. It's the only place where she's she's found her son, and she's found love, and she's found some peace. This is that third moment for Ellen that we talked about. She talked about having three moments that um, where she just completely let let out and 
became the character. And it was at, this is actually, we shot this on the first day of shooting. Um, so it was a good sign. But if, if you watch her here, it's just unbelievable what she does in these final minutes. Back and forth. Happiness, the sadness. And that light illusion, that X right there, just sort of came. It was the flares, and they just, the way they crossed and formed an X at the end of the film just sort of paid off that, you know, the whole that whole fantasy was just a complete fantasy. <laughs> it didn't exist. Chris McDonald, um, who plays Tappy Tibbins, just did an um, incredible job. We had one day to shoot all the Tappy Tibbins stuff on TV, something like 18 pages of stuff, and he just went out there and wowed them. And, you know, it was an audience filled with a lot of SAG extras, and they just completely loved them. And they were cheering. They were cheering and working their hearts out the whole day. And at the end of the day... Um, when we wrapped him, they gave him a standing ovation and just really hollered it up, which is like, by the end of the day, everyone's exhausted. And um, they just they just loved him. They completely believed him. The best part was standing on the craft service line, wondering if, you know, people wondering if, um, if what he was saying, his whole month of fury actually worked and thinking about doing it. So that's how good he was. Um, it's a long credit roll. And what we decided to do is just really let the audience breathe and uh, just create the sounds of the ghost town that Coney Island is in the winter. Give them the environment, give them the sound. Some memories calling from a distant era of barkers and roller coasters, but basically just the seagulls and the sea. I want to thank you all for listening to this. I hope it was somewhat interesting. Um, if you have any more questions, I don't know how to answer them right now because it's a one-way medium. Um, but, uh, you could look at the behind the scenes and some other stuff and, uh, you know, thank you for watching this movie. It was, it was a real passion piece to make and, uh, I'm glad we, we got it out there and were able to make it. Thank you very much.